the word of God from the book of Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I've commanded you today, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water, who brought you wa water out of the flinty rock, who fled you in the wilderness, fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good, did not know, that he might humble you and test you, to do you good, sorry, in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish, like the nations that the Lord makes you, you perish before you, makes to perish before you, so that you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Thanks, Blair. I, um, the syntax in the Old Testament's a little tricky. I hear you. I'm with you, girl, 100%. Would you pray with me? Um, Father in heaven, may your spirit uh, go before us, uh, guiding us, leading us, softening our hearts, that we might walk in deep discipleship with your son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, it's really good to be with you. It is. Uh, so let me just say it up front. This is the money sermon. It's a little bit awkward. Um, what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I aim to do is um, talk about money maybe twice a year. So you, we don't usually talk about money unless it gets naturally brought up in the text, and then we just say what the text says. That happened a little bit last week. Uh, but it's Jesus' very favorite topic. He talks about money more than he talks about prayer. He talks about it more than he talks about heaven. He's always talking about it. And I, I don't talk about it as much as Jesus talks about it, but we're, maybe this is my way of uh, trying to catch up a little bit. And part of me wants to, like, apologize. Like, if you're a visitor and you just showed up, you're like, great. The one Sunday I come, the pastor's talking about money, and he's probably, because he needs to pay his light bill, you know, something like that doesn't work like that. We're Presbyterian, just heads up. But, um, but I don't want to apologize. I'm not going to apologize. Um, because I actually think how Christians think about money is beautiful. It's, it's literally the, one of the most compelling things about our faith. The Christians for centuries are known by their generosity. We far and away are the most generous 
organization, institution, people in the whole world, and it's not even close. And it's actually compelling. And so if you're just exploring the faith this morning, it might surprise you just how Christians think and talk about money might be just the thing that sets your heart on fire. And so although it's awkward, I do want to talk about it very intentionally because money or wealth is peculiar in that it, it poses a very unique threat to our um, to our flourishing in a way that like other vices or sins like greed uh, do um, like greed it, it, it is hurtful in ways that other sins aren't um, greed has a way of disfiguring us spiritually in a way that you don't even know that it's the cause think about it like this um, like carbon monoxide or what I've learned since I've moved to Colorado, radon. I don't even know what radon is, but there, people have problems with radon in Colorado, apparently. Um, and the thing is, is you're like, your home can be filling up with it, but it's odorless and tasteless. And it's this gas that will seep in and it will make you really sick. It might even kill you. You can be breathing it in the whole time without even knowing it. Now, with carbon monoxide or with radon, we know the stakes and we know what to do. You buy these carbon monoxide radon detectors, you plug them in your house, and you just listen for the alarm. That's it. And so the detector, the alarm, helps you to know that you are safe from this threat. But what's at stake with our money? See, because being sick with greed is insidious, and it can make us spiritually sick. And people who are in the grip of greed, they can't see it, they can't smell it, they can't taste it. But God gives us this alarm, this detector, and what is this detector? It's this thing in Christian uh, discipleship that we call the tithe or tithing. Many of you know what this word is. Uh, it just means 10%. The idea there that the Christians have taught for centuries is that the first 10% of income that God provides for his people is designated for special use for the worshiping, of God's, uh, the worshiping community of God's people and for the mercy ministry in, in, their, in their presence, in their cities. So now listen, Christians believe that 100% of what we have is dedicated to the Lord in an ordinary way. But 10% belongs to God in a special way. Now, I'm not going to talk about all the details. I'm not even talking about tithing today. Um, I'm not, you know, some people are like, is tithing even a New Testament practice? That word's not even in the New Testament. Do you do it before taxes? Do you do it after taxes? People actually have a lot of opinions about tithing. I'm not even going get to get into all these varying beliefs. But with this number, like this apparatus, this 10%, what it forces you to ask yourself is, what do you believe about it? And do you even live up to your own beliefs about giving? It's not like once you get this number, once you get this like apparatus of tithing, it's not what do you theoretically think about money. It's, well, what does your life actually show about what you believe about your money? Uh, measure it. See if the alarm starts sounding off. Is anything going off? Is there any detector? Now, listen to me. I'm not here to cause anyone shame or guilt. Uh, 
All I'm saying is if you hear the alarm, you're supposed to feel safe, like you're fine. Now, if you hear the alarm and you unplug it and put it in your dresser, it could be fatal. But if you hear it, you're fine. You just have to take steps to protect yourself. Now, today, it's not, I'm not talking about tithing, but I am going to talk about and explore the virtue of generosity, because I long for something in my heart, in my children's heart, in, in the heart of Denver Presbyterian um, that's more than just uh, dutifully writing a check. Like, listen, I, I'm sure like, if we all dutifully just wrote some check, I'm sure we could very quickly buy ourselves some big, beautiful building where we could have this incredible children's ministry, and we would all come into that beautiful building and start to worship, but my sense, still not be generous, even though we're dutifully doing our thing. I want something deeper. Je Jesus, the Lord God, is interested in something deeper than duty. He's interested in our identity. That's what I want to talk about. I want us to rest so deeply in the generosity of God that it actually makes us more like him. The problem, the difficulty is you will not and you cannot fix what you don't think is broken. You get that? You're just not going to fix or change anything that you don't think is broken. Most people think they're already generous, and so they stop listening. You might, you might have already, you're like, he's talking about money, I'm checked out. Like, you might have already done that now. But this conversation on tithing can actually call our bluff. It actually shows us what we are functionally trusting in, and it can alert, it can alert us to the reality that maybe we're not actually who we project to be or we're not actually who we think we are. Again, this isn't a cause for guilt or shame. It's actually, you guys, a place of hope. And so whether you've been a Christian for one day or 100 years, you probably recognize that you are not who you want to be. And even as I've been speaking about this, maybe you're doing some mental math, and you're like, dang it, I'm not a generous person. And how do you, how do you become a person that you long to be? I mean, how do you become this person who we were destined to be? And I would just say that a generous life is going to shape and shape us and shape our loves in, in real deep and lasting ways because here is the reality now listen to this generosity does not primarily come from managing what belongs to us generosity comes from knowing and experiencing who we belong to so it doesn't come from managing what belongs to you it comes from experiencing who you belong to so this morning, we are going to mine this passage we just heard in De Deuteronomy 8, and we're going to mine it for two ideas. So there's just going to be a two-point sermon. I'll try to do it quickly. But first, we're going to look at our identity and our vision of scarcity, and then we're going to look at God's identity and a vision of abundance. So those are our two things. So let's start with our identity and a vision of scarcity. Um, some of you might know the name Nicholas Kristof. Uh, He's kind of this left-leaning journalist, highly accomplished, two Pulitzer Prize, Prizes to his name. He's not a Christian, uh, but he's been writing op-ed pieces for the New York Times for, some, for quite some time. About 10 years ago, he uh, wrote a piece, and he began with a question. He said, who would you rather be? And then he goes on to describe two people. He says, who would you rather be? Exhibit, or, uh, person A, Richard. Richard is an ambitious, 
36-year-old white commodities trader in Florida. He's healthy, drop-dead handsome, lives alone in a house with a pool. He's worked his way through a series of gorgeous women. Richard's job is stressful, but he did spend Christmas in Tahiti. He enjoys reading, marathon running, and writing poetry. In the last few days, he's been composing an elegy about the earthquake in, uh, in Haiti. Person B, Lorna. Lorna is a 64-year-old black woman in Boston. She's overweight and unattractive, even after her recent nose job. Lorna is on a regular dialysis, but that doesn't impede her active social life or babysitting her grandchildren. A retired school assistant, she's she is close to her 67-year-old husband. She's much respected in her church for directing the music committee and the semi-annual blood drive. Lorna believes in tithing, giving 10% of her income to charity and or the church. In the last few days, she has organized a church drive to raise $10,000 for the earthquake relief in Haiti. Now, Christoph's point is that while most of us, if we were kind of honest and raw about it, we might prefer to trade places with Richard, but Lorna is probably happier. And this comes from what Nicholas, Nicholas, Nicholas Christoph is doing. He's borrowing from the work of another social psychologist from NYU. His name is Jonathan Haidt. Uh, but what, what he found is like the question that he seeks to answer is what advantage does Lorna and her happiness, like how did she get there over Richard? And the main indicator that they have noticed in this case is a life generously and sacrificially poured out for others. Now, I use that example because it's so counterintuitive to our senses. I mean, wouldn't even Lordna want to trade places with Richard? And the answer is this resounding no. But why? What is it that Lordna understands about herself, about the world, about God, that has her living this incredibly happy life, the one that she's living? The one that Nicholas Kristoff, who's not even a Christian, can not notices. Right? And the key here is that Lorna believes that God has graciously and generously uh, given her everything and that he has at his fingertips everything that she needs to live in abundance and to flourish. And so while Richard, who is super bright, accomplished, goes on lots of vacations, he looks at the world, he understands, when he looks at the world, what Instead of the generosity and abundance of God, he understands that what he has isn't from that abundance. He has exactly what he himself has worked for. And surely he's worked hard, but he's got exactly what he's worked for. Now, I bring up this Nic Nicholas Kristoff example because this reality is actually going to help us understand what's happening in Deuteronomy and what was happening to Israel. So just real quick, the, the context for Deuteronomy chapter 8, Israel had left Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and that period of wilderness was a time that God provided for them, although the land was really barren, but every, they, they survived it because of his generosity. They had everything they needed, even water coming out of rocks when they were thirsty, and it was a test to ensure that Israel was crystal clear 
that God was their provider. They weren't their own providers. But now Israel's about to go into the promised land. Now the promised land is the exact opposite of the wilderness, of the desert. That land is rich with resources. But that's also a test. Who, when they get there, who will they see as their provider? God is saying, remember who you are. Because if you don't, verse 12, look there in your Bibles. If you don't, when you have eaten and you're full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up. That is, you will become arrogant and you will actually, because of the abundance, forget the Lord your God. And then there's a summary statement in verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You see what's happening there? So in the wilderness, it was super clear that God was the provider, and they they would literally die without his care. But in the promised land, there is this insidious sickness. And they started saying, Hey, I totally did this. I am my own provider. I'm rich because I did this. Because I did this. So let me just make this real explicit. If you understand yourself to be your own provider, then you will fundamentally see the world through a lens of scarcity. As, and as we begin to experience abundance, two things will emerge. First, we will no longer see what we have as abundance. Right? Once we get into our socioeconomic strata, we move into the neighborhood of our peers, we send our kids to the same schools, we socialize at the same bars, the same, you know, uh, microbreweries or whatever, and we compare ourselves not to reality, we compare ourselves to our peers. And we all say, you know, I, I live modestly compared to others. I mean, I'm right in the middle. We all think we're right in the middle. I'm not excessive. I don't really have abundance. I wouldn't call it that. I just live into my socioeconomic level. And we all feel average. And we would never say, you know what? I'm absurdly wealthy, right? We wouldn't speak like that because we don't think we are. And let me just say it here, right now, Denver Press, we are all absurdly wealthy. God has given us abundance, but it's insidious. It's hard to see it. It's tasteless, odorless. And the second reality that emerges is just like Israel, who went into the promised land and used the lush land to build wealth and thus see their wealth as something that they provided for themselves, we too tend to look at our wealth as something that we built with our own hands We all experience God's abundance, and we say, I I did this. Like, I built this house. Like, some of you are like contractors. You're like, you know, literally, I built my own house. I did it. It's me. I mean, I worked hard in school. You know, it was my business savvy. It was my negotiations. It was my grit that brought these opportunities. I'm the one who hit the pavement, right? I am an educated person with opportunities because I worked really hard in school. I and my own provider. But that does not square with the Bible. Like the Bible will know nothing of that. Christopher Wright, the great Old Testament theologian, 
he says it like this. He says, all human strength, gifts, abilities, and life itself, along with the material resources out of which the wealth has been created, are the gifts of God. We are as little the makers of our own strength as we are the makers of the earth. This is the first principle of biblical economics. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but he has given it to the human race for our use. So listen carefully to the risk. When you say, I did it, I did this, you're attaching your identity to your wealth and your accomplishment. Your wealth and abundance is in some ways an affirmation of your worth. It validates you. It says, the world is scarce, but I did it against all odds. And that feels really good when everything's going as planned. But what happens when your abundance is in jeopardy? Like, not only is your wealth in jeopardy, but your very identity is at stake. And so what do you do? Well, if you live in scarcity, you hide it, you save it, you fight for it, you violate the dignity of others. Maybe it's your family, like you work extra long hours and and your family is starving for you because you're trying to get more of it. Or maybe you take advantage of the dignity of your employees, right? Because they're just a means to your wealth creation. And then you don't even know who you are anymore. So why do I say all these like like really painful things? (laughs) How we relate to our wealth reaches deep into how we see ourselves and how we see God. And therefore, generosity, it's not just a practice. It's actually how we understand our place in this world. It's how we understand who we belong to. You're like, okay, ouch, stop it, Garcia. Fine, I'll write a check, whatever. No, 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 keep your money in your pocket. I'm not even there. Like, like I'm not even there. Generosity does not come from managing our stuff better. It comes from knowing and experiencing who we belong to. That's what I'm after. I'm simply, what I'm asking at this moment, all I want us to do is, are you listening to the detector, the alarm? Is it going off? And like, would you even have enough courage to acknowledge that's going off if it were? I mean, would you? God is graciously reorienting, reorienting our identity. All right, so that's going to move me to my second point. So we look first at our identity in this vision of scarcity. So the other side is now God's identity in a vision of abundance. So I have a good friend. His name's David. Um, David grew up in California, born and raised in California. His freshman year of college, he goes off to a California state school. Um, But his freshman year, his parents, his whole family moved to Pennsylvania. So they moved away while he stayed in California, and then came the first Thanksgiving break. And he didn't have enough money or the time to take a flight all the way out to Pennsylvania, so he decided for this first Thanksgiving, he's gonna spend it with some friends. Uh, so one of his friends invited him over for Thanksgiving lunch, and as the two of them are driving to his friend's house, his friend starts having this casual conversation with him, and he says, hey, listen, um, my dad, whom you're about to meet, he grew up really poor blue-collar, hardworking. He has worked really hard to get what he has. And, and, and now, my, my parents, my, my father is a man of means. 
Um, but he's still gruff. And that's the word that his friend used. But my dad's gruff. Um, and so his friend says to David, and so when we're eating Thanksgiving lunch, do not ask for seconds. Well, that's like a really weird thing to say. Like, who says that? That's what he said. So there David is, his 18-year-old kid. You know, he's not reading the social signals well or whatever. So they're at lunch, and David's having his first home-cooked meal all semester. He'd been eating cafeteria food. He's like a bean pole, just hungry, excited about home-cooking meal. Eats, cleans up his plate. Uh, he gets up for seconds, and the whole family notices. Like, it kind of goes quiet. And the way that David describes it, he says, like a cloud descended. He had broken the family taboo. And in the silence, the father breaks the silence and makes this cutting remark about David being too hungry or something like that, as if to say, hey, this isn't your place. Like, this isn't your food. Don't just eat what you got, right? The rest of David's Thanksgiving lunch with this family was really uncomfortable. It actually made David really insecure. It was, and it actually, he would say that it made him insecure about his own value. Like being in this home, like sucked the life out of David. That's what he tells me. Now, thankfully, that's not where David spent the whole uh, Thanksgiving break. He was actually staying at a different friend's house. So after lunch, he drives to that house. When he shows up to the front door of this next home, the father is waiting in the door. And this family is the opposite. And the father looks David in the eyes and says, David, welcome to your home. Anything we have is yours, man. You just, if you see food in the cupboard, just grab it, eat it, enjoy it, and whatever you want. If you need sheets, just you're in your home. Hey, listen, let me show you your room. It's a nice room. This is for you. Hey, at nighttime, our family kind of has this rhythm. We'll all meet in the living room, and we do these games and stuff. David, we want you to be a part of our family. Like, please, would you join us and just hang out with this family or hang out with our family? Be a part of everything we're doing. Now, in this case, the father, the father is pulling David into the abundance of the family. Can, can y'all see how that works? How do you think that made David feel? He went from feeling insecure to feeling secure, to alive, to connected, right? That, that house made this 18-year-old kid kinder, and it made David more hospitable, made him want to be like that. So he went from wanting to run away and hide to wanting to be included. The first house was characterized by scarcity, the second by abundance. Can you see how the house shapes the family in it? Can y'all see that? Y'all know what I'm saying right now? How the house shapes the family in it. This is why it's so important to have a correct vision of God's abundant care. And he's pulling you into his abundance. So in our passage in Deuteronomy, we're invited to see clearly how God is abundant, both in the promised land, but also when they were in the desert, right? Look, look at verse 14. Speaking of God, Moses picks up, he says, 
God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't even know about, that he might humble you and test you, but to do you good in the end. See, God was always the provider because everything is his. And this, at this time, meant that we're humbled. At, at that, like, the, the people of Israel were humbled, right? They're, he was providing for them just what they needed. They're humbled, but why? To do good to them in the end. So they would to. God was always the provider. Why? Because everything is his, Right? idea is if, if God is truly our provider, and if this world is to be understood through abundance, if that's true, then we all can be imitators of God. Like, we get to be like him, to be generous too. And that's actually further clarified in verse 18. Look there again in your Bibles. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. If he gives you both the wealth and even the, the power to make wealth, then it means that you and I are connected to this infinite supply of abundance. Then what you need to perfectly flourish and to really live abundantly in a big life, what you need will never run out. See, generosity, it's not just a practice. It's a way of understanding this world and especially of understanding who we belong to, who we're connected to. Now, I keep repeating this idea because if I'm right, if our generosity is a way to truly understand who we belong to, then one thing that's really important will follow. Then giving is not just about stewardship or management, but it's actually about communion with God. I want you to listen to this. What I'm talking about is communion with your God, with the living God. Giving is not something that's instrumental for something else. Like, uh, uh, listen, of course we're going to feed the hungry. Of course we're going we're to have a building where we can be hospitable to our community. Of course we're going to buy these kinds of things. All of that is secondary. Giving is not functional. Giving is relational. Like, look, at the very end of our passage, there's a stern warning. Look at verse 20. It says, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you'll perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Did you notice that? They would not obey the voice of the Lord. Voice of the Lord. That is code speak. That is code speak for they broke fellowship. They broke communion with their God. See, it's in the context of a meaningful relationship in which we hear each other's voices, right? We talk to one another. To hear the voice of another means that you are communing with them. Giving is the act of redirecting God's wealth for the larger good of communion with God. And that's what we want. Do you remember the woman who broke into Simon the Pharisee's house party where Jesus was at? 
Remember, she wasn't invited to that party, and she got her most expensive oil and perfume, dumps it out on Jesus. What was she after? What was she after? Making the room smell good? Oh, it's communion with Jesus. You remember when Jesus has that short conversation with the young boy, with the two fish and the five loaves? Y'all remember that? What were those resources about? Just feeding people? It's about communion, communion with God, with Christ. Do you know why the early church outgave the Roman Empire? They outgave them until they were until the Roman Empire collapsed. The early church didn't just take care of their own poor. They took care of everyone's poor. It was crazy. It's very well documented in history. Christians have always been crazy generous. Why? Was it duty? They wanted communion with God. The abundance of God meant the abundance of relationship with him. God commands our generosity, but not because he needs our money. He's not broke. It's because he loves you. Because he wants communion with you. Do y'all see that? That's what's going on. That's the voice of the Lord pulling you into communion with him. All right, let me just finish with one final thought. Because I really want to be clear. I want more than just like dutiful giving. Uh, what I want is I want us to know with certainty that we all belong to a generous God. And if you, if you walked away just saying, yeah, I belong to a generous God, then you've heard the one thing I want you to hear. But to do that, we have to deal with our misplaced identity and our vision of scarcity. We have to lean into and dive into and swim in God's identity and the vision of abundance. And when you plug in that detector, that alarm, and if it sounds, it's just calling our bluff. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're not what you think you are. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. Feel safe. Oh, that's what I want. I want you to feel safe. Act on it with generosity to your church. Deep, a kind of generosity that makes you have to practice faith, but do so with making sure that you're so knows who you belong to. This isn't some work we do. Right? You're, not, you're not, when you, on the final day, when you stand before God, you don't get to point to your checkbook. You know, this isn't a work that you're doing to earn God's favor. We're not saved by our generosity. None of that should motivate our giving. None of it. Listen, when we became Christians, through the death of Christ, his blood took away all of our sins. And it was all grace. It was all his preeminent grace. But more than just the forgiveness and an empty account, he actually fills our account. Like he gives us full acceptance. He didn't just tithe 10% of his blood. He like gave all of it to you. And none of that can ever be taken away. You who are riddled with greed. None of that. But now, because of that same grace, he is giving us the dignity to become who we are destined to be one day when we're transformed. God is more committed to your transformation than you are. Like in heaven, you guys, you're not going to struggle with greed. But now, in this moment, 
we get to taste just a little bit, participate a little bit in that, in that transformation in this life. So today, we get to imitate Christ. We get to give freely, sacrificially. We give ourselves away. Just as our Savior did, we get to be like him, and we get to pull others into that abundance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just recognize, I preach these sermons and prayer these prayers that um, it's really uncomfortable, Lord. It's so uncomfortable to talk about money. And I don't know what that says about me, Lord, and I don't know what that says about Denver Prez, uh, but I know what you say about you, and you are generous, and you are good, and your love never gives up. And you give and give, and it's never empty. And so, Lord, today I just pray that you would just remind us that we belong to you. And all the earth and the power to create wealth, all of it is you. Let us be free to live in that, Lord. Let us be free. Teach us to trust the gospel. Trust all that you have said to us in your word. We want to be fully yours. May we raise children who will be givers, that wouldn't be tied to the frivolous things that our social media tells us we should care about. That would free us from fear, that we would practice our faith in real ways. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.